Walter Raup with the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except it occurs, in this case, on a Tuesday's managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors this week to analyze all baseball of particular note. The signing by the Baltimore Orioles, or the re-signing by the Baltimore Orioles, of first baseman Chris Davis. He features considerably above average power on contact, uh, but doesn't walk as much as you'd like. That sort of player to watch, and he also plays only first base. What is the significance of that contract, and what is the significance of Scott Boris's role in the signing of that contract? Seems to be reason to believe that he has a direct line to Peter Angelos, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, just as he does to the learners, the owners of the Washington Nationals, who signed Boris Clyde Max Scherzer last year. I asked Cameron, not just with regard to Boris, but with regard to agents generally, is there a way, essentially, to assess them, to evaluate the uh, contract terms they're able to secure for their clients relative to what we might expect, uh, given those same clients' projections? There's also a brief discussion of what follows of arbitration. Figures have been exchanged between players and teams. For example, with the Chicago Cubs, Jake Arrieta has submitted a number around $13 million. His team, the Cubs, uh, only around 7 They'll probably settle. They might not, but they probably will settle. Meanwhile, AL MVP Josh Donaldson, uh, his submission and the submission by the Toronto Blue Jays features a gap of only uh, like $500,000. What will they do? What will they do? That's a question for Dave Cameron. I also asked Cameron uh, something to this effect. I asked him about our colleague Eno Saris. I said, what's the deal with that guy? Here's Cameron's response. He just wanted to do that. More important information along these same lines and what follows. What follows immediately, what I'm delivering to you post-haste, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is Draft, the Draft app. Are you familiar with daily fantasy sports games? Not unlike DraftKings. Not unlike FanDuel. Well, then the concept of Draft, the Draft app, will not be particularly alien to you. It's much like those, except unique in that it is the uh, first such game designed specifically for mobile devices. Here's how it works. You download the app. You find an opponent in the draft universe. This could be a friend of yours or an internet stranger. You conduct a snake draft. Each select five players. Those players accrue fantasy points. Whoever accrues the most fantasy points, you or your opponent is the winner. Are you interested in rendering these proceedings mas caliente? You can do that by wagering actual American currency on the outcome. That's possible in most states, I say, most states. And you can play this game with a number of various sports. For example, basketball and hockey. The professional versions of both are also available in addition to baseball when that season begins. And football when that regular season begins again. Now that you're consumed by curiosity, allow me to inform you how to find the draft app. If you have the iOS operating system on your device, go to the App Store. And if you have the Android operating system, Go to Google Play or something like Google Play. Google Play. Google Play. All right. That represents the end. The finish of the sponsor's message. Allow me to introduce you to the end of the introduction. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Because uh, family had um, your family, your wife had MLK day off. Yeah, which meant the in-laws came over and uh, not a not a podcastable house. Wait, so does that mean just no one at the hospital then on MLK day? Um, well, my wife works in the outpatient uh, cancer center, so oh, yeah. uh, 
it's not the people who are like actively dying or like turned away because they, we wanted to honor the great Dr. King and so we just weren't <laughs> going to treat anyone who was sick that day. Uh, the hospital itself was open, but the outpatient uh, come and get checked up and make sure you don't still have cancer or that your cancer is in remission or, you know, get some prescriptions for new medicine or something. That was closed. All right. Yeah, yeah. So you're just saying that um, in an effort, right, to recognize the legacy of Dr. King, the hospital doesn't treat sick people, just like Dr. King wanted. Yeah. I mean, anytime we can uh, honor a doctor by killing more people, I think we have to do it. I'm not sure he was a doctor of medicine. Is that right? That's probably true. Probably what? Theology? What did, what? Uh, maybe. I mean, he was a minister, right? So yeah, I would, yeah, I would have guessed theology. It was a total guess, though. I thought... Uh, um, perhaps, perhaps, in fact, his actual first name was Doctor, and so it was a Doctor, and then Martin Luther. Could be. It was a middle name. I was. I proposed uh, to my wife. I said, if we were ever a child, could we name he or she, him or her, uh, Doctor? And uh, she said no. <laughs> well, said, apparently, Rookie Davis's parents thought that their son would perpetually be the first, like in his first year of everything. First year of everything. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's sort of a. That could be a way to go through life. Not saying the best way, but maybe not the worst either. You know? Yeah, I mean, like everything would always be new and interesting to you, but you'd never be good at anything either. It's usually, you're not right. Yeah, you're not. Although I, th- I think his first name might actually be William. Okay. So, well, that makes my joke less funny. Yeah, but it's a it's a nickname. Said for there's also there is lawyer Malloy who uh, was a yeah some sort of University of Washington. Oh, did he? I think he was yeah. a safety. Does that sound right? Safety for the Patriots. Yeah. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. All, one of the best uh, football players uh, in University of Washington history. Okay. Yeah, along with like Napoleon Kaufman and Steve Entman. Yeah. yeah. This is, wait, so I'm guessing that Mark he, Bruner. He must good. have been at the school at a time when you were following collegiate football pretty closely. Yeah, the the kind of late '80s, early '90s Washington Huskies. Uh, yeah, I liked them a lot. Oh, it's, it's an interesting choice. I guess. Well, I guess you lived in the Seattle area, right? Yeah, and they were good. That was basically the two fulfilling things for a kid to root for a team is they're close and they're good. Along the Avs there, uh, what, University Avenue uh, in Seattle, there's a lot – There, I remember from when I lived there, there were multiple stores called like the Dog Pound yeah. and the Dog Store. Dog House probably. Dog House, yeah, right. And you yeah. could uh, you could buy goods, simulated yeah. goods. Usually purple probably. Yeah. Let's see uh, – let's see. Let's see. Justin Upton just signed. Yeah. His name, not a profession. No, but I want to say this. I want to say this. Um, I have a feeling inside of me, and I'm also not special, so my guess is that other people have this feeling. I will submit that at some level, free agent signings are not as um, exciting or don't create as exciting a raw material for exploration as do trades, for example, because you really just have a sort of Evaluation um, that the team has made and to which the players agreed, and so they, they both parties seem satisfied. Yeah, I think trades are definitely more interesting because I think, um, well, for one thing, the exchange of assets is more obvious when it's uh, player for player versus player for cash, mm-hmm. because I think people don't necessarily always see cash as a fungible good that could go to some other player, so they don't necessarily see it as like, oh, we traded the chance to sign you in a Cespedes for the right to sign. Justin Upton, like they just don't see it that way, even though it's potentially true, not necessarily always dollar for dollar, but you could, 
you know, if you don't buy Justin Upton, you could have bought something else. Uh, but it's more clearly like we're giving up this and getting that. You can kind of evaluate the pros and cons of your two options versus when it's just someone else's money. You're like, well, that wasn't my 132.5 million, so I don't care. Now we have Justin Upton. He's good. I do care. I'm pro move. So I think you have some segment of the people who, um, just see spending money is always a good thing and they don't really care to analyze it much beyond that. And then I think, uh, you know, with player swaps, they can be a little bit more intriguing and, uh, maybe, especially multiple player tra- trades where you can say, you know, one of these three or four players turns into something, you know, what will the trade look like? What if two of the three players turn into something and you can kind of have multiple outcomes versus with a signing, it's like, well, this guy's either going to live up to the contract or he's not. Right. And also, doesn't, uh, w- when two teams make a trade, they both reveal something about their own valuation, valuations and evaluations of the player whom they're trading and, uh, you know, obviously to the degree they have information, the player for whom they're trading. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as like, you know, we don't need a shortstop. We have Derek Jeter or something or, you know, like, uh, we have this, this player, so we're trading from depth and it doesn't necessarily mean that the team isn't high on the player they're trading away. They're just making a move to solidify some other part of the area or they're weaker. But right, you do sometimes see these challenge type trades. Uh, where teams say, you know, like the Jesus Montero, Michael Pineda trade from a couple of years ago is a pretty good example of like, you know, two teams with, you know, talented young players who were well thought of and the Yankees said, you know, we would rather bet on the bat and the Mariners said, uh, or the, the Yankees said we'd rather bet, bet on the arm, uh, than on the bat and the Mariners said, well, we need hitting and we're going to bet on Montero. And so I think trades like that are probably a little bit more interesting than, than any kind of free agent signing you can imagine. Right. Or as you noted, when, if, if one team is trading, a number of prospects for say one player. So like the, uh, right. like the, the Phillies Rangers trade from this past year, um, where you have a bunch of, uh, a number of prospects going from Texas to Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, that's interesting, especially because of course Cole Hamels had been a trade target for so long. Um, yeah. Anytime we can talk about Cole Hamill's trade value, um, I'm all it, in on that idea. Interesting. Well, it worked out well for. I think it worked out well for both teams actually. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think uh, I I still don't love the package the Phillies got as much as most people do. I know like uh, a lot of Phillies fans think they got like this crazy good deal. Uh, I'm not quite as high on the players they got, but uh, it's certainly better than just keeping him. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. And uh, I think like like Jared Eikhoff worked out decently. I think probably more quickly than I expected. Not that he was fantastic, but he pitched some serviceable major league innings, which I don't. Yeah, think. which you know they're gonna need. Yeah, yeah. It, at least it's nice to see because I recently wrote the player cap for Michael Franco. Listen to this, Dave Cameron. Seven players this past year, more than 300 plate appearances, recorded the following: a greater than 200. Uh, iso- isolated slugging uh, number mm-hmm. and and less than a, uh, something less than a 16% strikeout rate. Michael Franco was one of them. The others were like Jose Bautista, Edwin Encarnacion, Anthony Rizzo, like David Ortiz. It was only good, and only good hitters. Yeah, I think uh, the combination of power and contact is a good base to start with. Uh, the trick is that all those other players also draw walks, so. Uh, Ooh, good, yeah. good luck to Michael Franco figuring out the strike zone. He needs to do that. He should do yeah, that. That is going to be the probably deciding factor on how good a player he becomes. Either that or his defense. Uh, 
That's true for it. Uh, let's ask this, and we can actually. Uh, I said the words Justin Upton to begin this entire conversation, but this is perhaps more relevant to uh, another player who's uh, who signed this past week, which was Chris Davis. <clears throat> A big question for the power hitter uh, in his in his uh, long term success is the degree to which. I guess is the, it's the degree to which he takes walks, not simply because he's taking walks, I would assume, but also because he's making sure uh, to use his swings prudently and swinging at pitches that he can actually hit. Right. It's not so much that drawing walks is the goal. It's that walks are a byproduct of not swinging at pitches out of the strike zone. And so if you have a decent approach at the plate and you're not chasing pitches that you either can't hit or can't hit forcefully, then you will draw walks just because pitchers don't have that great of command. And so a guy like, uh, you know, Michael Franco or Joanna Cespedes or some of these like talented athletes who swing really hard and hit the ball really hard, um, you know, as long as they keep chasing pitches out of the zone, they probably won't live up to kind of what their power contact skill set says they could be. Uh, but then you see in Cespedes' case, like, you know, is he's uh, turned into a pretty good player regardless. So it's th- certainly not a requirement that you draw walks, but Franco's not a great defensive player, and um, he's really going to probably be carried by his bat. And if you don't don't control the strike zone and you're swinging at pitches out of the zone, you could pretty quickly become, you know, Jeff Francoeur. Okay, right. And now, with regard to to Chris Davis, uh, isn't it the, the case probably that one of the sort of leaps he took um, to become not not merely a, an average player, but something considerably above average, or at least to produce above average seasons, um, was was taking more walks? Is that part of it? Yeah, I think that yeah, right. Like learning the strike zone is certainly something that comes as you get older, and so you don't want to just look at a guy who's not drawing walks when he's 22 and be like, ah, oh, this guy sucks. He's never going to draw walks. Uh, but I think at the you know, at the same time, there are some players who are uh, who understand the strike zone better than others, and you don't necessarily just want to forecast every good young power contact guy and be like, yeah, this guy's going to eventually learn how to draw walks as he gets older. Some do, some don't. It would be a, a lot easier from a talent evaluation standpoint if players followed a sort of a, a normalized curve. That would <laughs> that would be make things easier. Yeah, and it would. Maybe less interesting. Okay, Chris Davis, what, seven years, $161 million. Yes, okay. <clears throat> that's correct. Um, not uh, not not really $161 million as we're typically used to it, though, because quite a bit of it is deferred. $42 million, yeah. $42 basically, million. Uh, basically a fourth of the contract. For the contract, which is – this is, I think, an even more aggressive deferral system, uh, deferral payment schedule than uh, – than Boris got when he's when he signed Scherzer with the Nationals. Uh, no, no it's okay, a so long longer time no. frame, but less money. Scherzer deferred half of his 210 million dollars, so he got 105 million during his seven years, but then deferred 105 million. So um, uh, Scherzer's pays out, I think, over 14 or 15 years, where Davis's pays out over 22 years. So mm-hmm. less money deferred, longer time period. Right, and of course, uh, I mean, it only comes out. What is it like, three million a year or something like that? Three and a half million a year for ten years, and then one point four million a year for seven years, I think. Right. So in in uh, twenty years, one million dollars. Yeah, it'll be worth you know the a modern day equivalent of like six hundred grand or something. Right, which is not a bad amount of money to have, but uh, there's a there's a pretty good chance that by the time Chris Davis is Chris Davis stops receiving checks from the Orioles, mm-hmm. the last check they'll send him will be like less than the league minimum. Will Baltimore still be above water when they send in the last check? 
Probably, but San Francisco might be an island floating in the Pacific. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was having this uh, conversation offline with uh, Michael Bauman. Do you know him? Yeah, I do. He's written about college baseball. I think he's back at Baseball Prospectus now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was, I think he was writing something where he was uh, speculating idly on um, if all if every team that currently exists would win the World Series before the world ended. And um, I think that the, the the mathematics of it suggests that all the teams that are currently playing would all – there's a very good chance that they would all win by 2070. Um, yeah. I mean, I think well, – so like if every team was exactly equal, every mm-hmm. team would win once every 30 years, right? Right. But obviously that's not true. Some teams have better chances than others, so maybe the teams at the bottom end of the spectrum should only be expected to win every 50 or 60 years. Yeah. Uh, but right, it's 2015, uh, 2016, I guess. Uh, yeah, there might be one team who hasn't won by 2070. Like, I, I could see – just kind of like the way things break that some team doesn't win a World Series in the next 60 years. Well, sure. Like just like for example, the Cubs have not won right. for yeah, right, 100 years, or whatever. 100 years, right. So I mean, I think like the the future of baseball will likely be more competitive than the history of baseball. Uh, right. So I think we probably won't see these long 100 year stretches as often as we used to. Um, but you never know. But predicting, we'll, predicting the future in 100 years is not not so easy. But if all the stadiums remained exactly where they were. Uh, um, given the current rise in sea level, how many could we expect to still be uh, use, u- usable at that time? Uh, I don't know the like, answer at all. I don't know, 28 or something? I mean, I think what? San Francisco is definitely in danger. Yeah. Uh, because My, of, like, Miami? The, uh, I don't know about – I haven't seen enough suggesting that, like, the East Coast is in as much danger as the West Coast. Okay, all right. My my geographic understanding is, like, there's a, there could be a major earthquake that basically just takes everything west yeah. of I-5 and throws <laughs> it Pacific. And that would, you know, San Francisco and Seattle would be probably the two biggest losers in that. Right. In that. And, of course, San Diego is very close to, uh, uh, to the water as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's hope uh, these uh, – I think there's enough – that's going on currently that's terrible that we don't need to to focus on the future. Yeah, so let's let's forecast 100-year terribleness. Yeah, the um all right, so Davis Davis of course possesses a skill set which ages poorly. And I think you had to go back to what was the comp you had to go back to where where if, if Davis followed that particular career path it would actually make sense given the contract value? Like Jim Tomey? Right. Okay. Yeah. And Jim uh, Jim Tomey, of course, fantastic player. Who, a much better player than Chris Davis. Who preserved? Who preserved it? What was better about Tomey? Just to remind us. Well, his walk rate was like double. So mm-hmm. instead of walking 10% of the time like Davis, he walked like 18 or 19% of the time. Uh, so he just got on base significantly more often. Uh, and relative to the time, his strikeout rates weren't quite as high as Davis's are. Like Tomey struck out whatever 25, 26% of the time. In a time when the league average strikeout rate was, you know, 17% or so, uh, Davis is striking out, you know, 32, 33% of the time at, at a time when the league average is about 20%. So Davis has a more significant contact problem, uh, less control of the strike zone, and, you know, probably uh, less usable game power. He might have more just raw power, but in terms of, you know, kind of consistent game power, he's only... Uh, you know, produced at this kind of elite slugger level twice in his career in eight different seasons where Tommy consistently was one of the best sluggers in the game for, you know, two decades. Right. So what is the, so what is the motivation? Is it just that the power hitters are getting quite a bit of money anyway and that's, and that's what this is? And, and if so, what has been, the, what has been the difficulty for, for Upton and Cespedes, both of whom seem to possess, uh, you know, they possess defensive skills as well. 
Well, I think so. Power hitters have always been overpaid, and I think uh, I, I would say it's fair to fair to assume that Peter Angelos has not uh, necessarily followed the trend of more analytical decision making in baseball as the game is headed that direction. And I think that there's a reason that the other 29 teams weren't all that interested in Chris Davis this winter. Um, but I think you know Angelos probably as uh, an 86 year old with a lot of money and and not all that concerned about the future and aging curves and those kinds of things. Looked at Davis as a guy who's a good player, who he's familiar with, and said, "Yeah, I want to keep him." And that was kind of the end of that analysis. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I don't think that there was a lot of uh, work being done at the ownership level in Baltimore on, you know, whether it's wise to pay a 31-year-old slugger with contact with significant contact issues a seven-year deal. I think Peter Angelos just wanted to keep the guy. Don't teams remember, like, so? Like the, so, for example, in recent years, Ryan ha- Ryan Howard has um, had some he's had some uh, subpar seasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he, but that was not always the case with Ryan Howard. He, right. He, possessed, he was excellent for a while. Right, and he still he still possesses uh, pretty excellent power on contact, but yeah. not uh, sufficient power to compensate for all the shortcomings in this game, right. including his you know defensive position, which which requires a lot of offense anyway. And that's been that's made the Phillies tough to to watch it's made it difficult for them to win yeah and surely uh, other 29 owners owners must see that certainly peter angels must have seen that does it not is it is it just the is it what is the thing that short circuits the human brain to focus on these sort of um, the the short-term virtues as opposed to the long-term long-term realities well, I think for one thing, Ryan Howard's a little bit of an abnormal situation, right? Like not every big slugger is going to turn into a replacement level guy at the time they turn 30. Like Howard is the absolute worst case scenario where you could go to the other end of the spectrum and find, you know, guys who aged really well like David Ortiz and be like, well, you know, every big lumbering slugger is going to be awesome until they're 40. That's not true either. So, you know, like if, um, Howard is just as, as kind of an outlier, uh, as Ortiz is and we shouldn't necessarily say like because Davis has some resemblances to Howard as a hitter. That's that's the direction he's going to go. Like Ryan Howard is not Chris Davis's aging curve. He's just part of it. Um, so I think it's reasonable to look at Davis and say, look, he's a better athlete than Howard was, a better base runner than Howard was, a better fielder than Howard was. His floor is higher. Or even if the bat goes south and he's a you know slightly above average hitter instead of a really good hitter. He's not totally useless like Howard is. Like Howard was 100% dependent on hitting the ball over the wall, and when that went away, he became bad. Uh, Davis has a higher floor than that. So I think that there's some rational reasons to not just look at the Ryan Howard deal and be like, let's never sign Chris Davis. Because uh, I think, you know, realistically, if they would have signed Davis for like five years and $100 million, it would have been totally fine, mm-hmm. uh, given what Davis can probably do in the short term. And get, they'll give you probably a couple of good years and then maybe an average year and then some not-so-great years. $100 million is probably a reasonable, rational valuation, you know, in the time when Major League Baseball is $9.5 billion in revenue. So what we're talking about here is, you know, $60 million in wasted money, something like that. And, you know, a lot of it's deferred. So as we wrote kind of about yesterday is the deferred money kind of makes us more like a $150 million contract. So really, like, Peter Angelos threw away something like $50 million to keep a player that he likes. Like, not a good idea, but it's also probably not going to cripple the franchise. I have a question about agents. Uh, of course, Scott Boris is part of this story because um, he appears here to have done something similar to what he did in, in uh, Washington where he was able to get a deal signed uh, directly with ownership as opposed yeah. to going through the baseball ops department. Yeah. Um, we, Scott Boris's reputation 
being able to get his client's money seems to be pretty well solidified. What do we know about – I mean, Boris is part of this question too, but what do we know about this, this skill or sort of attempting to measure the skill of, of agents uh, with regard to their ability to get their clients uh, free market or better than free market values on their contracts? Yeah, I mean, I think it does have to do a lot with how well an owner or how well an agent can get access to ownership. So um, I think some of the more notable agents who've been around a long time and have represented big clients have probably formed relationships with owners who've also been around for a while and they've seen each other and, you know, kind of just developed kind of comfort levels with each other to where, you know, if Mike Illich gets a phone call from Scott Boris, it's not that weird anymore. Or if one of the learners gets a visit from Scott Boris, that's fine. I'm, I know this guy. I've signed like, you know, 40 of his clients over the last five years. Uh, you know, I'm used to dealing with him. I know how he speaks. I know his language. Where if you have, uh, you know, newer agents or agents who aren't necessarily as established and they just try and call the owner of a team, that call might not go get answered. They might not get a call back. So I think there's probably some kind of, uh, you know, nonlinear value that an established, you know, well-reputed agent like a Boris or a Casey Close or one of those guys can have because they have access to negotiate with people who aren't rational when it comes to their their money. And, um, you know, I think when you're having to deal with a baseball operations staff, that's probably more understanding of what their options are and what else they could do with that money. And if they said, you know, like if, if I think if you'd given Dan Duquette, uh, you know, the choice of spending 160 million dollars, he might not have used it on Chris Davis. He might have signed Justin Upton or Yohan Cespedes and then gone and gotten a starting pitcher. And he might have thought that was a better use of funds, but he wasn't given that option. <laughs> it's Peter Angelos' money, and Angelos decided that he wanted to spend it on this one particular thing. As Jeff Sullivan wrote, he might not have said he might not have approved the same expenditure on other players. Dave, yeah. you stop playing with your toys while we're on the phone? I, I think Liberty is really unhappy with the fact that we're podcasting on a Tuesday. <laughs> okay. She's like, no, no, podcasts are not on Tuesdays. Podcasts are on Mondays. It's, it's playtime. Right. Well, uh, if you would explain to your dog that we spent Monday. Liberty, we're on the air. Acknowledging the, acknowledging Dr. King's uh, contributions to the country. Maybe Liberty, be. you need to stop squeaking in honor of Dr. King. <laughs> um, are there any other agents uh, about whom who have a I'm not going to say the same sort of reputation as Boris, but we know who we know are particularly good at getting their getting their clients' money. Um, uh, I'd say Casey Close would probably be a second. Uh, he's a guy he had, he represented Derek Jeter for a long time, and I think uh, was able to extract. Yeah, I I would you like me to go chase her because she's she would really like to be chased. We can take like a two minute pause and I can get the toy away from her and hope she doesn't go get another one. Yeah, well maybe grab the toy. Well, I'll play uh, I'll play okay. Fangraphs audio hold music. There you go. Well, I'll be back in a few minutes. Okay. Carson. Yeah. The dog has been dispatched. Okay. <laughs> Not permanently. No, good. Good, yeah. good, good. Uh, so, so just a, a, a brief examination, at least this is just merely of his Wikipedia page, re- uh, reveals that Close also represents or has at least, or has represented uh, Clayton Kershaw, Zach Greinke. Some pretty good guys. Yeah, right. Um, and so. Dave Hayward. 
Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. And so, so, so Casey Close is sort of, um, as you say, he's the, uh, he, he best approximates uh, Scott Boris among the I mean, guys. I would say he's probably not quite at the same level in terms of ownership access, but I think that's probably another guy who has access to owners and can kind of circumvent baseball operations staff. Uh, when need be, if he's going to say, hey, look, you know, the GM and the, and the analytics guys are telling me this guy's only worth $100 million and I want 150 the the way to get that extra $50 million is often just to talk to the owner. So and, you think uh, there's a greater, uh, there's a more narrow sort of band of of uh, projected uh, contract terms that are produced by baseball operations staff than, than, uh, than might, be got, uh, might be extracted from the ownership. Absolutely. I mean, I think like maybe look at the Angels uh, during the Jerry Depoto years, right? Like it was pretty well known that the, the Albert Pools and C.J. Wilson signings uh, were Artie Moreno. He he just wanted to do that, and so his GM didn't really have a say. And uh, at some point, you know, like Depoto left and is now uh, running things very differently in Seattle than than the Angels were running Anaheim. And it, it seemed pretty clear that Moreno uh, decided he wanted to spend some money on some big players, and the GM just kind of goes along with it at that point. Like when the owner wants to do something, the GM's not going to tell him he's not allowed to. I think one of the interesting things that came out about the Upton signing is that Mike Illich really wanted to sign Chris Davis. Not a big surprise because Scott Boris often calls Mike Illich in January when he's got a free agent out there looking for money. Uh, he did this with Prince Fielder a couple of years ago. It's a pretty regular phone call, I think. Um, and Illich was basically ready to go after Chris Davis and Al Avila, who's the new GM replacing Dave Dabrowski, uh, basically convinced him to go after Upton instead. And I think that's probably the best thing an owner or a GM can do in that situation is instead of Talking your owner out of spending money is just to redirect him into spending it a little bit better. Okay, right. Now that gives a, so this team actually so it happens so happens not only uh, had Tony Blangino uh, who writes for Fangraphs.com not only had written a, a lengthy piece about where uh, Upton about where Upton and Cespedes were likely to end up uh, before that deal was made. Uh, I had also prepared the the text or most of the text for the Detroit Tigers zips projections. So that Upton signing foiled us doubly, uh, but uh, Blangino's piece was was uh, was revised, and uh, the Zips piece went up with a revised projections. The point that remains is, is uh, despite the fact that Dave Dombrowski is gone, it is very much uh, the, the roster is constructed very much in a stars and scrubs fashion, and the Justin Upton signing does nothing to to uh, change that really. I mean, it makes it less scrubby. Well, it makes it more <laughs> they're, starsy. They're, yeah. they're, right. They've moved a scrub to a star. There's zero players between uh, 1.6 and 3.5 wins. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, so like the guys who run uh, Nephi, which we've written some, we've published some guest posts from them uh, the last couple of days. We'll publish another one tomorrow. Um, the guys who uh, are behind that, they have a, their own blog over at their uh, nephi.co site. And they actually, their most recent post is actually kind of about this Stars and Scrubs uh, methodology and, and kind of the best way to evaluate uh, team depth. And they, it's worth checking out. Um, but they, I think they have kind of like a, a variance measure from the top of the roster to the bottom of the roster. And uh, the Tigers, you know, come out as one of the most extreme teams, uh, as do the Marlins and a few other teams. And it's worth looking at and, and saying, like, these are the teams, essentially, who have stars and scrubs themselves. And, you know, in general, I think these teams are uh, seen as a little bit of underperformers. Like, they often go into the preseason with a decent amount of hype. Uh, a lot of teams were, or a lot of people were kind of selling the Marlins as the Nationals' biggest threat last year. And they ended up not having a very good season because they didn't have a lot of depth. And so when Jose Fernandez went down, they were screwed. And I think uh, the Tigers are probably in a similar position again. It's like they're really counting on, 
you know, Miguel Cabrera and Justin Verlander and kind of their, their core players to produce at a high level. And if any of them get hurt or under, underperform as Verlander did last year, there just isn't enough secondary talent to step up and kind of carry the load. It's also, isn't that what happened with the Cincinnati Reds last year as well? Yeah, I think you could argue they just didn't have enough stars either. I mean, they had Joey Votto and, um, you know, and that's it. <laughs> they, they <laughs> no, well, Johnny, Johnny Cueto. Johnny Cueto, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they had <laughs> stars, but you probably need more than that. Right, you want to do more than that. And then, of course, uh, the Dodgers uh, have a number of good players, but with the exception of Clayton Kershaw, they don't really they don't really have any one player uh, whose presence is essential to the success of the team. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the more interesting things and why uh, I would say there's a huge disconnect between kind of what, how we see the Dodgers, uh, or at least how I and Fangraph's projections, uh, and some some writers probably for us, see the see the Dodgers and how mainstream media and kind of the perception sees the Dodgers. I think there's a, a sense that the Dodgers just aren't that good because they don't have that many elite players. They have, you know, one the most elite pitcher, who counts as like two elite pitchers, um, but, you know, people just look at it and they're like, well, there's one great player and then everyone else is just a little bit above average or, uh, you know, not, not so bad. But when you have, you know, Corey Seager projects as like a four-win player and Adrian Gonzalez is a three-win player and Dustin Turner is a three-win player and, um, you know, the Jock Peterson's a three-win player and Ismael Grandal's a three-win player and, uh, you know, Kenta Maida and Scott Casimir, maybe two three-win pitchers. Like, um, they got a lot of above average pitchers and that counts and that matters. And I think from our perspective, it's fine to have a roster full of two to three win guys, especially if you have an eight win pitcher, uh, kind of carrying the load and you have a four win rookie shortstop. And, you know, I think that no question the Dodgers have, uh, probably the most depth of any team in baseball in terms of kind of across the board above average or above average players. And that's how they've used their resources. I think that's a really good way to build a team. Other people kind of like the Tigers prefer the stars and scrubs method. Uh, but long term, I'll take the Dodgers, uh, over the Tigers. Okay. You've heard it here first, folks. I don't know. The uh, let's let me ask you about arbitration. This past Friday, teams and players exchanged their figures. Is that true? Uh, yes. Players who remain arbitration eligible and who had not come to terms on the contract before Friday. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what happens is the uh, the players um, side, the players council, they submit a number. Uh huh. The team submits a different number, probably lower number. probably I'll- lower. Not probably. Absolutely lower. <laughs> lower. Would it be embarrassing for both sides if the team submitted a number that was higher than the players? It's like, oh, be, we should have talked be, before like, we got here. The, the agent should be fired, and the analytics guys <laughs> who prepared the number should be fired. Everyone should be fired if that okay. Well, I, I, I don't like to think about that because it's, uh, you know, unemployment's frightening. Yeah. Especially in these tough times, Dave Cameron. It's true. Um. Okay. So that's happened. Here, here's a, a moron's question, first of all, and I'm just the moron to ask it. These numbers are uh, are available, for example, by way of MLB Trade Rumors Arbitration Tracker. Yeah. You could see what uh, both the player and the team have submitted. How is that – is that actually publicly available information, or is that – are they just aggregating reports made by various beat writers, et cetera? Yeah, no, they're aggregating reports. Oh, okay. So so there's not like uh, – besides besides these trackers you find, there's not one place you could go. It's not, this is not, there's not a list that's published – um, or a press release that's published by MLB. No, I mean, so generally what will happen is teams will have public press releases that announce the signings, but they don't put the terms in there. The teams will just say, we've agreed to terms with this player on a one-year contract, and then the beat writer who has actual access to sources will find out what the number is. Okay, all right. Well, it seems like it takes a lot of work. Yeah. Glad I don't have to do it, but 
Uh, <laughs> you just don't like doing work. <laughs> well, that particular type of work, it's just like a fact. Right, what that you particular need to get. type of work do you like to do? Because maybe we'll ask you to do that. Uh, I like some I like some data entry actually. Really? Yeah, I don't mind data entry. Okay. I mean, not for long periods of time, but if you can listen to uh, like a podcast while you do it, huh? It makes it kind of pleasant, don't you think? You might be the first person on earth to say they really like data entry. I'm not sure I've ever had it for a job for like a long period of time. Yeah, I've had it for a job, and it's not great. Well, it doesn't sound. Yeah. I guess. No. Well, you probably at some point you 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 realize a robot. If if technology yeah. were slightly more advanced, a robot could be doing what you're doing, right? It's definitely one of those jobs that won't exist in 50 years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because uh, because Miami will be underwater. Or yeah, right. Yeah, right. Be. Here's a, all right. So so the numbers have been submitted. <clears throat> Here's what one finds. Uh, looking over what we have here, Jake Arrieta. Uh-huh. Uh, this is big a, difference. Yes, Jake Arrieta. The Cubs appear to have submitted five point five million dollars. Oh, seven point five. Oh, seven point five. Oh, sorry. The difference is five point five. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yes. Okay. Here we go. Seven point five and. Uh, uh, Jake Arrieta's people have submitted 13. Yeah, that's a big gap. Now, based based exclusively on not not merely on uh, both on his production from the last two years and also his projections for last years, I would guess that 13, uh, well, 13 is even falling short of the uh, you know what his free market value is. Yeah, I mean all these all these numbers are going to fall way short of what they would get as free agents. I mean, uh, Josh Donaldson last for 11, coming off his MVP season. I mean, that's what Alex Rios got last year as <laughs> a free agent. So, you know, these guys are asking for like half or a third of what they're worth in free agency. Right. Well, so so what's going to happen here though? Uh, that's a, that's a big that's a big gap. Uh, this is one that I think usually when you see gaps this large, it means that they're going to settle. Uh, you know, I think. It's unlikely that either side is going to be able to or have a desire to defend a number that is so far off from what the other side asked for uh, to where, you know, it will be pretty clear in arbitration, you know, kind of uh, that the, the owner, the, the arbiters are going to have to pick one side or the other, um, you know, like either area that is like not very good or he's amazing because that's kind of like the two, uh, you know, divergent requests here from the side. So my guess is they're going to end up Settling for around ten, um, but I, you know it, it could go to could go to trial. I'd be surprised if the area of the case didn't get settled though. It seems like more often than not, the ones that go to hearing are actually the ones with smaller gaps because the teams just kind of dig in their heels and say we're not budging on this hundred thousand dollar difference uh, or two hundred thousand dollar difference or whatever it is. This is at our line, and both sides just kind of like take a principled stand and they end up going and fighting over peanuts. But when it's like a five million dollar gap, both sides are just kind of say you know what, let's just kind of meet in the middle. Yeah, well, uh, you mentioned that uh, cases where the 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 two no, the figures are pretty close together. That's actually the highest midpoint, um, if that's how you want to look about it. And I should say that uh, Sean Dolinar published today a really cool visualization of yep. uh, using all this data. The highest midpoint belongs to Josh Donaldson. Not surprising, right? Uh, that and. Um, he is uh, his his side has submitted 11.8 and the Blue Jays submitted 11.35 yeah. relative uh, relative to the amount of money being discussed. That's a that's a very small difference. Right, but that one probably will go to trial uh, or go to unless they come come up to terms with a multiple year contract because the Blue Jays are what they call a file and trial team or a file and go team, which basically means like once you exchange numbers, they will no longer negotiate a one year deal. Uh, so you know they basically set a deadline as of the filing date and say if you file a number and you don't agree to terms with us beforehand in order to settle, 
uh, we're going to go to court or we're going to go to, we're going to go to arbitration with you. Um, and the Blue Jays went to, went to arbitration with Donaldson last year, right after they traded for him. They beat him last year. And so, um, you know, they, they could very well be looking to go, going back to arbitration the second time, even though you'd look at it and be like, $500,000, this is stupid. Like, why don't you just settle somewhere near the midpoint? Uh, realistically, when you have a $500,000 difference, the mid, you know, the settling point for both teams is going to be somewhere around 11.5. Uh, so we're fighting over 50 grand or 100 grand. Uh, and I think there's actually like a pretty decent case to be made that, uh, this is an inefficient use of resources for both sides. Like the, the Blue Jays staff who are going to have to work on the case and prepare their case and kind of put together their arguments and take their time to travel to Arizona and make these arguments. Um, uh, they could be doing something else. They could be doing something else. <laughs> like, you know, they, they, this is just a bad use of resources. And so I think like, uh, you know, teams who can avoid arbitration settlements, especially when they're this small, are probably better off for it. Okay. Uh, are there any other notable cases for you? I, I mean, those are uh, the, the Arietta and, and Donald seem seem significant because they're both important players. Is there anything else that uh, sticks out for you? Uh, you know, I think like a lot of the interesting ones got settled, um, you know, or have already been signed. Uh, you know, I think like uh, a guy like Steven Strasburg would have been kind of a fascinating case, but you know, he signed for ten ten million dollars. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of the maybe the more interesting ones uh, got settled. Okay. All right. Uh, I wanted to ask you about one thing. This actually goes back to the earlier part of this conversation. We discussed uh, the, the distinction and the sort of what is and what is not revealed by a free agent uh, signing as opposed to a trade. And it occurs to me that something that does not happen very often in the major leagues in baseball or really any American sport is a player is traded for cash, for a large amount of cash, right? And this is this is like – in uh, uh, European football, for example, this is how players are acquired. Right. One team, usually uh, a giant, you know, a much big, a bigger club, buys a buys a player essentially buys the rights to that player from right. from a smaller club. And um, uh, I'm curious as to why what has developed um, such that, that that does not happen. I guess in any of the American sports, really, but uh, but in particular in, in baseball. Well, there's an actual rule on the books that uh, kind of prevents it. I mean, it's not like a – it can't happen, but in any trade uh, where more than a million dollars trades hands, the commissioner's office has to approve it. Uh, so there's like a, a rule on the books in Major League Baseball that is kind of designed to disincentivize cash for player trades because um, no one really wants to like run their trade by the commissioner, right? Like you'd rather just make your move and and just have it be fine. Um, so I think like the league doesn't really want players being sold for cash, and I think it's probably mostly an optics situation. Like uh, you know, if you sell a player for cash, it makes it look like you're not trying to win. You know, if you like if the you know A's last winner had sold Josh Donaldson for fifty million dollars, while also trying to bilk the you know <laughs> Oakland. Uh, Bay Area uh, Public Financing Committee out of uh, new money for a stadium, it's not not a great look because you just got $50 million in cash for your best player and now you're asking us for money. But if you trade him for like young prospects, you can kind of make the argument like, oh, we're building toward the future or whatever. So um, I think it's probably not in baseball's best interest to have their teams, especially like kind of the lower revenue teams, selling their best players to big revenue teams. Uh, it makes uh, arguing that you're poor uh, quite difficult. Oh right, and but and of course you can't do that in effect as well, right? So if you, um, I guess what if you if you have a player who's making quite a bit, and you don't uh, you don't foresee winning in that particular year, then you can trade him for uh, for prospects. Right. Yeah. I mean that's of varying qualities. 
there, there's no real difference in terms of practical effect of selling a player for cash versus trading for young cost controlled players who don't cost very much because in either way you're like reducing your payroll and you're making your team worse. Um, and you know, like, uh, you know, the, the idea that like cash, uh, transactions are, uh, worse is mostly an appearance issue. It's not a, it's not a tangible issue in terms of like teams aren't actually worse, uh, because they, um, you know, sell players off instead of being able to trade them for talent because that, that cash could just be reinvested in talent. And that's how it works in European soccer. Like teams who do a transfer and get a hundred million dollar transfer fee can then go buy other players or sign other players or do more scouting or whatever. So, um, you know, theoretically it should all get reinvested and, and spent the same way, but it looks a little bit better if you trade for players instead of sell them and then buy new players. Okay. Uh, finally, before we go, um, uh, the Tony Bongino thinks that maybe now Cespedes ends up in uh, with the Orioles, the Mets, or maybe a wild card like the White Sox, he says. What are uh, what is Dave Cameron thinking? I mean, the White Sox make the most sense, I think. Like, uh, if you look at their team and say, look, they're trying to win. They traded for Todd Frazier. They traded for Brett Laurie. They kept Chris Sale and Jose Abreu. Uh, you know, they signed Melky Cabrera and David Robertson last winter to, you know, significant free agent contracts. This is a team that's, like, trying to take advantage of a short-term window to win, and they're starting a Vasael Garcia. Like, that's not a good idea. Uh, so <laughs> I think the White Sox should probably go spend the most money and just sign Cespedes and get a four-win upgrade or a three-win three upgrade or whatever you think Cespedes is or a replacement-level player because that's what Garcia is and kind of push themselves stronger into the the kind of contention bubble uh, that is the AL Central where there are no great teams. There's a bunch of teams kind of hanging around the, the low to mid-80s, and the White Sox could be that if they had Cespedes. Um, but, it, you know, they keep talking about they only want to do a short-term deal, and, and I think there's enough interest in Cespedes that he's not going to have to sign a short-term deal. You know, there's a lot of talk that Upton was going to have to take a one-year deal, and then he got 6 132 with an opt-out. So um, my guess is Cespedes is going to get something like that. It might end up being, you know, 5 110 or 6125 or something. It might be a little less than Upton, but it's going to be something in the same range. Uh, and I think, you know, the White Sox, to me, make the most sense for the team to do it. I don't know if they're going to, but they should. You know, Abisail Garcia's numbers resemble Diane Vicieto's very closely. They're the same player. Yeah. 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 Not really a ton of idea about the strike zone, decent power on contact. Not that much power. Not enough power. Not enough contact. power. Not, not enough power to make everything else. Like, you know, this is like the... Uh, Mark Trumbo skill set to some degree. Like you have one carrying skill, except that it's not an elite carrying skill, and you're terrible at everything else. Yeah. At least Trumbo can play defense at first base. <laughs> can those guys not? Is that what we have to assume? I mean, they they uh, they basically are DHs getting masqueraded around in the outfield. Yeah. You don't hear that well, word. Well, Lead Rosario is also this player, but he's he was so bad he just went to Korea. Oh yeah, but he can catch too, right? No, he can't. Oh, he can't catch. No. Oops. No, okay. <laughs> Just like Avasio Garcia can't play the outfield. Right, right. Oh, yeah. Where, where is Willene Rosario? Oh, he, he went to... He's going to Korea hmm. because he stinks. Oh. Well, he's good enough. See, well, we fundamentally... No, no, he literally enough. stinks. He just doesn't shower. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dave Kerman, you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, thanks. All right, very good. Uh, so we'll, I, will say thanks to, I will say thanks, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. Okay. That has been... Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.